Good morning, good morning, good morning. Welcome to Walking with Jesus Through the Word, one chapter per day. I'm Pastor Jason Van Bemmel from Forest Hill Presbyterian Church, and today we are in day number 110, which means we are now more than 10% of the way through our three-year journey through the Bible, and this brings us to Exodus chapter 21. This is a tricky chapter. We're dealing with the civil law of Israel given under Moses. So let's pray and ask for wisdom. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would help us to understand your word, to be discerning about your word, and that you would write it on our hearts and help us to see your heart and your son through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 21. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, and I will not go free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, he shall not, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for herself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint a place for you to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. He shall only pay for his loss of time and shall have him thoroughly healed." When a man strikes a slave, male or female, with the rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, and the woman's hu- as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay the judges as the judges determine. But if there is harm... Then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. 
When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and if it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give it to their master 30 pieces of 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or, if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. That's Exodus 21 in the English Standard Version, and as usual, we're using ESV.org from Crossway for our on-screen text display. Ah, good coffee this morning. Exodus 21, tricky passage. We're coming to some difficult parts of the law of Moses, and theologians have wrestled with the law of Moses and how it applies to the life of believers today, and have come to see that there are really three different aspects of the law of Moses. There is the moral aspect of the law, and the moral law of God is summarized in the Ten Commandments, which we looked at uh, two days ago in Exodus chapter 20. And the moral law of God, being a reflection of God's own moral character and being repeatedly throughout Scripture, is absolute binding uh, unquestionably on all people everywhere because we're made in God's image and we uh, have to keep the moral law of God. And it is that which is the basis for which people are judged. And Romans 2 even tells us that the moral law of God is written on the consciences of people even if they don't have the scripture because we're made in God's image. But this is another aspect, which is the civil aspect. And then later we'll get into the tabernacle worship, which will bring us to the ceremonial aspect or the the uh, worship aspect. Now, you can look at this and you can see in these three aspects of the Mosaic law, three attributes that God gave people when he made us in his image and three callings that we have in life. The moral aspect reflects the fact that we are made righteous. Originally, when Adam and Eve were created, they were made in knowledge, holiness, and righteousness. But we are called as God's people in a fallen world to pursue righteousness, justice, and holiness. And you can see those three aspects of God's will for our lives, righteousness, 
holiness, justice and holiness in the three aspects of the law. So the moral aspect of God's law reflects God's righteousness and calls us to be righteous. That is to do right and not do wrong. The civil aspect reflects God's heart for justice and calls for us to do justice, to be just and to fight against injustice. And then the ceremonial ritual aspect of God's law is a call to holiness. It shows us the importance of being holy, which is dedicated to God. So as we go through these three aspects of the Mosaic law, we're going to see principles of righteousness in the moral law, principles of justice in the civil law, and principles of holiness in the ceremonial law. All of these aspects of the law are fulfilled in Christ. And this will be the sermon for next Sunday, May 1st, at Forest Hill, we're going, to, we're going to be going through the moral law of God over the summer, and the first sermon in our series, in the first Sunday in May, is going to be talking about how the law, all of the law, is fulfilled in Christ, and then how it applies to us. So that'll be not this coming Sunday, uh, the 24th of April, but the 1st of May. And so, all of this to say, we have the civil law of Moses, uh, of God, given through Moses here, and there's a lot of accommodation. There are principles of justice that are important, and we, we will see those. But there's also a lot of accommodation in the Mosaic civil law. Because God is governing a nation of people who live within a particular cultural context. And they're also living under the old covenant age of the covenant of grace and not the new covenant age. And so there's not the same level of heart transformation. They have the law of God written on tablets of stone. They have the written law of God. In the new covenant era of the covenant of grace, God writes his law on our hearts and changes us from the inside out. So what we see is God accommodating his principles of justice, which are clear, but then accommodating those to the realities of the culture and the weaknesses of the people. And that's why there are things in the moral law, in the civil law, rather, that we would say, I don't know about that. That doesn't seem to be particularly right or the best. And there's later scripture that would even actually say that maybe that's not right or the best because God's accommodating. Now, we didn't just make this up as, as theologians and Bible scholars. Jesus himself uh, gives this principle to us when he's asked about divorce uh, in Matthew 19, as well as in Mark, he's asked about divorce, and he he says about marriage, the two are one flesh, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That's Matthew 19, 6. And then they ask him, why then did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Matthew 19, verse 6 or 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So we see in Jesus' teaching about divorce, it's part of the civil aspect of the Mosaic law that he says was not God's original creation design, but was an accommodation to the hardness of their hearts because of the hardness of heart, your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. We see reflected in this chapter, polygamy, the idea that a man could take more than one wife to himself. That is, again, another accommodation to the hardness of men's hearts, but is not the way God designed it from the beginning. So let's look at this chapter very quickly and just see some eternal principles of God's justice and then how God accommodates 
to cultural realities as well as to the hardness of people's hearts. So slavery was widely practiced in the ancient world. It was the most common reason for someone to sell themselves into slavery was due to uh, excessive indebtedness. If they had a great debt that they could not pay off. And so there is a system in place to say, if it's a Hebrew slave, six years is the maximum amount of time that he can serve you. And in the seventh, he shall go out for nothing. So there's a limit set. God did not allow his people to own one another as property. Within all of these slavery codes, there are limits set on what the slave master can do to the slave, and the slaves have rights. They are not just property. In all the surrounding cultures that practice slavery, slaves were just property. They didn't have any rights. They were bought and sold, just like a cow, just like a horse, just like an ox, whatever. They had no rights. But here we do see God setting limits on slavery. Now, some of these limits are not ideal because ideally there wouldn't be any slavery at all. But because of the cultural realities and the hardness of people's hearts, God allows four systems of slavery, but he sets limits. And here there's a, a seven year, the seventh year a Hebrew slave has to go free. And then there's how do you handle marriage among slaves? Well, if he comes in single, goes out single, comes in married, goes out married. But what if what if what if the master has a female slave that he got somewhere else and he gives the female slave to this man? In marriage, now you have two principles, that he should be set free on the seventh year, but also that marriage is a gift of God and is supposed to be for life. You know, when you get to accommodating culture and the hardness of people's hearts, situations get messy and sticky. So God gives the slave a choice, which is a radical freedom. The slave has a choice to either say, I want my freedom or I want my marriage and I'm going to stay with my master in which case it would be now voluntary servitude for the sake of keeping his family intact. Again, is that ideal? No. Is that the way God originally set up his creation? No. Is that the way we, in the new covenant age, should be approaching things? No, we shouldn't be having anything to do with slavery at all, but it's an accommodation. And it's accommodation that still has principles of justice behind it, and that is that God values both freedom and marriage. And so these things are held somewhat in tension. A man could sell his daughter as a slave. Now, again, that's ugly. Like, why would they do that? Well, that was just common practice. So a cultural accommodation, it's a reality. But she has rights. She can't just be treated as an object. She can't be put out to work in the field with the male slaves where she could be sexually harassed or raped or, you know, put in a, a compromising situation. And really, it's like a marriage. He's She's supposed to basically be married to the master, even if she takes... Even if he takes other wives to himself, her food will not be diminished or her clothing or her marital rights. So she has marital rights to be provided for and to be cared for as a wife, even though she's a slave. Same thing if he gives this woman to his son. He shall deal with her as with a daughter. And so if he's not going to do this, if he's not going to respect her rights then he has to let her go without any payment of money. We have uh, capital punishment for murder, which is a creational principle. God first established this in Genesis chapter 9, before the Mosaic Law. He reaffirms it in Romans chapter 13, after the Mosaic Law. 
It's a principle of justice that human life is so valuable that if you willingly take someone else's life, then you have forfeited the right to your own. Because if someone willingly takes another person's life and then that person is allowed to live, we're saying that the life of the murderer is worth more than the life of the person that they took. And that violates a very important principle of justice. Man-stealing, verse 16, is forbidden. And this is really important because uh, God says here that, <coughs> excuse me, God says here that if anyone steals uh, someone else, there's the death penalty. So man-stealing is very, very serious in God's eyes. If you take this and you take it with verse 2 up here, uh, when you buy a Hebrew slave, that is a fellow believer, uh, he shall serve you for six years. In the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. If you take these two verses together, they're both valuing the eternal principle of freedom, the justice principle of freedom. And God's people who take God's word seriously should be anti-lifelong chattel slavery. And the American slave system was invalid from the start because much of it was based upon man-stealing. In Africa, sometimes tribes would kidnap members of other tribes and sell them into slavery, but also some of the European slave traders who went to Africa kidnapped uh, people and sold them into slavery. So a system based on man-stealing is illegal from the start, and a system that would have a believer holding a fellow believer in lifelong slavery is also illegal from the start. So I think overall, the principles of scripture that we're all made in God's image, we all have equal value in his sight, and God values freedom, should lead Christians to the conclusion that slavery is completely immoral and unacceptable. But the American slavery system as it existed, uh, and the European slavery system as it existed, was even under the terms of the Mosaic law, which culturally accommodated, allowed for slavery, was illegal because it's based on man-stealing and it allowed even believers to hold other believers in lifelong slavery, which was unacceptable. There's also some protection on the life of the slave. Now, verses 20 and 21 are difficult because a man strikes his slave with a rod. If the slave dies, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged for the slave is his money. And that's pretty harsh. But the standard, the cultural standard of the ancient Near East was you could beat your slave to death right there on the spot and there was no problem because they were your property. God here is restraining that and saying you may not beat them to death or you will be put to death. He shall be avenged. So you're risking facing the death penalty if you're going to beat your slave to death. And later, he says, even if you cause him to lose an eye or a tooth, then they have to go free. So these laws together would restrain the abuse of slaves because if you do beat a slave to death, you're going to be put to death yourself. And if you beat a slave so that he loses his eye or his tooth, then they're going to go free. So these two things would combine to sort of cause a restraint on the abuse of slaves. We have a protection for pregnant women in verses 22 to 25 that if the pregnant woman, 
is struck and the children come out and there's no harm, then the person who hit her should be fined. But there's not a death penalty. But if if the child is harmed, that's what's being said here. If there is harm to the child who comes out, then you will pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So if you attack a pregnant woman and you cause the unborn child to die, that's a human life and you're subject to the death penalty. That, that's pretty serious. And then any if you do any physical harm to the unborn child, that same physical harm is done to you, this principle of reciprocity. <clears throat> um, and then you have some laws about what to do with livestock. And here, the principle of justice is that you are responsible for your actions. If you've been warned about something, if you know, we have liability laws that are kind of based on the same thing. If you knew that your guardrail was faulty, you know, on the edge of your third story balcony, you knew that it was loose and faulty and someone leads against it and they fall down, you're going to be liable for that because you could have taken steps to prevent that. You should have taken steps to prevent that and you didn't. And that's much the same as what's here. So we see eternal principles of justice in Exodus 21. Freedom, human life, right? Marriage and reciprocity as well as responsibility. But the way they're spelled out is to accommodate cultural realities of the ancient Near East and the hardness of the hearts of God's people. So we can still learn much from this, but we have to understand it within its context, which is always true of all scripture. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the way it teaches us your truth. Please help us to be wise and discerning and faithful in everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, tomorrow we're going to continue on to Exodus chapter 22. Hope you can join us for that. Have a blessed day in the Lord.